This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to Instant Genius, a bite-sized masterclass in podcast form. I'm Alice Lipscomb-Southwell, the managing editor at BBC Science Focus magazine. Now Christmas is just around the corner and I don't know about you but I love Christmas and I'm already super excited about it. But what bird could be more associated with the festive season than the robin? In this episode I chat to Helen Wilson, a professor of human geography at Durham University. She has written a book, Robin, all about one of the nation's favourite birds, which investigates their natural history and their role in our culture. Now, Helen, you've written a book all about robins. Now, would you say that robins are perhaps our most familiar bird? I would say, yes, that robins are one of the most familiar birds in the UK. Um, obviously, you know, depending on who you ask, people will have different answers to this question, but they are very familiar and I think there's a number of reasons why they are. So the first is their distinctiveness. It's very, very easy to identify a robin. They have that distinctive ruddy coloured breast. Um, if you think about how we learn about animals and birds when we're very, very young, the robin is often one bird that we learn. Well, we learn about the robin earlier precisely because they're so easy to identify. It's also because they're so common as well. So you know, you'll see robins in gardens, you'll see them in cities, the countryside, and um, they do have a tendency to come quite close. So we do have the opportunity as well to see them regularly. So not only are they distinctive, they're very easy to come across. And then, of course, you know, there is their presence in um, culture, in, in British culture. So they're present in nursery rhymes, but they're also uh, an icon of Christmas. So you can't you can't move at Christmas time without seeing a robin. They'll be on your wrapping paper, your Christmas cards, your stamps. They'll be hanging from trees. So, yes, it's quite difficult to get through your year without seeing at least one robin. And you said that they're quite associated with British culture, but do we find robins anywhere else in the world? Yeah, absolutely. So we're talking here about the European robin. So yes, they are distinctive in British culture, but the European robin actually has quite an extensive range. So they can be found across Europe. They can be found in North Africa, parts of the Middle East, but also Western parts of Asia as well. So quite an extensive range for the European robin. So the European robin has quite an extensive range, but then there are many other robins um, across the world that appear in different bird lists. Some of them belong to the same family as the European robins. So you'll have robin chats and bush robins and magpie robins, scrub robins, and they're robins of all colours, all colours and sizes. You might think of the, um, the American robin, for example. So there's lots of other robins beyond the European robin, um, and they can be found the world over. 
Now, concentrating here on the European robin, because that's the one we're most familiar with. Now, if we get them coming into our garden, is there a way to tell the males from the females or can you even tell an individual robin apart from another one? An easy, easy answer there is is no, probably not. They are very, very difficult to tell the difference between a female and a male. So some birds will have quite distinctive plumage and it'll be very, very easy to tell the two apart. But with the European robin, no. Actually, there's a there's a slight difference in, in size, but it's very, very difficult to discern. So even close up, actually, it's quite hard to tell the difference between the two birds. In terms of individual robins, Some people will argue that you can tell the difference, or at least you can recognise individual robins. If you have a garden robin that you feed regularly, uh, that you see on a daily basis, people talk about building up this relationship with their their garden robin and being able to identify uh, their garden robin. That might be the case. It might also be a mistake to assume that the robin you see every single year is the is the same robin. But yeah, you, you might be able to tell the difference uh, in, in, that, in that context. Now you touched on it there that people almost build this relationship with the robins in their garden and indeed robins are called the gardener's friend. Now why are robins friendlier than other birds? Because it certainly seems that other birds just fly away from us. Yeah, yeah. And again, so yeah, you'd maybe put, um, you know, when we talk about the robin being a a friendly bird, you know, maybe use that in inverted commas, but it is to do with their feeding behaviour. So first of all, they do like to feed on worms and grubs. And so when we hear this, this kind of account of them being the gardener's friend, that is largely to do with the way that they hang around when we garden. So if you've ever been out in the garden and you've turned over the soil or you've done some digging, you'll notice that robins appear quite quickly. And this is because they've uh, spotted an opportunity for earthworms or other insects that have been uh, revealed as part of this gardening activity. So they'll stay close by as an opportunity to then dip in and and, and kind of uh, pull out anything that's been revealed. So there's this this sense that they are a companion, if you like, you know, because they do they do tend to hang around. So if you spend an afternoon in the garden, like I did a uh, last summer, lifting up slabs. You'll have a, a, a robin that might appear and spend that afternoon with you, uh, working alongside you as you move the slab. The robin will hop down and grab whatever whatever is now available. Uh, so yeah, so and the robin also, unlike other small birds that tend to hang around in groups. If you think about sparrows, they're often in large numbers. Uh, the robin often hangs around by itself, and so again, there's this the willingness to come. Um, to come close to us, especially for feeding. You know, you can actually, I don't want to use the word tame, but you can sort of train a robin. If you feed the robin regularly enough and you, you know, bring that food closer and closer to you, you can actually get a robin to feed out of your hand. And what do they like eating? What are their favourite foods? Oh, you know, they'll eat a range of things. So, you know, as I said already, grubs, earthworms, berries, seeds, fruits, obviously they'll feed from feeders. So, you know, fat balls and so on. But yeah, a range of different things. Now, I've heard that while in the UK, we've got this association with the robin being a friendly garden bird, but it's not necessarily the case across the rest of its range. Is that true? Yeah. So you do tend to see robins in gardens and cities in the UK. You do across large parts of Europe. But, you know, you might tend to find robins in woodland and scrubland in, in places like Russia or, you know, if you're talking about um, North Africa in mountainous 
regions in kind of low mountainous regions. So it, it isn't the case that robins occupy the same kinds of um, habitats across its its range. Is how long will robins live for? Uh, so the longest or the the oldest robin on record. Well, actually, there's two. So it's, so it's between seventeen and nineteen years old is the oldest robin on record but that is incredibly rare birds that have been ringed uh, tend to be between the ages of four and six but they do have a very high mortality rate so actually a lot of a lot of robins don't survive the the first winter there are a lot of um, stories about people who um, talk about the the robins in their garden and how long they've lived. And there's a really there's a really nice account from the ornithologist David Lack, who talked about a, a seminar that he gave on robins and was talking about uh, their high mortality rate. And somebody in the audience was incredibly upset because they had been feeding their garden robin for 17 years. Now, given that the oldest robin on record is 17, 17, 19 years. Perhaps that was the case, but as he pointed out at the time, that that is highly unlikely, and she was very upset by that. Now, he said that the robins will come back to your garden, or it certainly seems that way. Um, They're quite territorial birds, aren't they? They are territorial birds, yes. So we hear a lot about how uh, friendly the robin is, this friendly kind of cherished uh, bird, but they do have this other side to them that is also talked about they are highly territorial they occupy territory all year round which is which is quite unusual uh, and they will defend that territory so the red breast is uh, one of the mechanisms that they use to warn other birds off and they will also use song as well so the song that they are very famous for uh, and that they're loved for is also a part of their territorial practice. So they'll use song to demarcate the the edges of their territory and protect that territory. So yes, very, very territorial birds. And they will fight off other robins uh, that try and and take over parts of their territory. And talking of that song a bit more, they sing all year round, which is again quite unusual among the birds, isn't it? Yes, that's right. Well, they, 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 they sing all year round, but it's also to do with the robin being present well, particularly in, in the UK, in the British Isles, the robin is present all year round and it holds a territory all year round. So a lot of other birds will migrate, whereas the, the robin stays put and tends to overwinter here as well. So you will hear them all year round. So how can the robin deal with our winter temperatures when loads of other birds migrate? Is it just a real tough bird? Yeah, again, yeah. So in in, in Britain, it, you know, the, the milder winters, mean that the the birds tend to stay put but actually if you look at the the european robin across its range it does migrate so in the uk we might see or we do see uh, an influx of robins over winter from scandinavia so these are birds that are flying south for the milder uh, winters in the British Isles. So we, you know, not only do you see robins in the winter because they stay behind, but we also see greater numbers because we have an influx as well. And then birds across the continent will also move uh, south and southwest for warmer climes. Interestingly, the European robin was actually involved in um, some of the studies in the 1950s that actually told us a lot about why birds migrate or how birds migrate. So uh, it was almost by accident that that it was found that that 
birds use um, magnetic sense, so the Earth's magnetic field, to direct them. So uh, some robins were were held in a in a tank, and that tank prohibited them from seeing celestial cues. So it was thought that they used uh, stars and so on to to navigate themselves. When they were put in this tank, they didn't have access to any of these cues. And for the first couple of days, the robins that were held there were were disorientated. So they weren't facing in the right direction that we would expect them to go during their migration. However, after several days, it was found that these robins did start to reorientate themselves and were then eventually facing in the right way. So there was obviously something there that wasn't a celestial cue that was important to their migration. And what it was found was that this tank had blocked out partially part of the Earth's magnetic field. There was still a weak uh, sense of it. And so over those days, the robins that had been kept in that tank gradually uh, readjusted themselves to this to this magnetic field. And so that is what they were using. So then after this initial experimentation, they uh, ran another set of tests where they used powerful magnets to disrupt this magnetic field. And as they expected, the robins then reorientated themselves based on this change to the uh, the magnetic field uh, that they were in. So, so robins actually became, um, you know, a part of this new research on, on bird migration and understanding around magnetic sense. So you were saying there about how we get this big influx of robins over the winter months in the UK. Now, is that how they came to be associated with Christmas? Yeah, well, yeah. So there's a, num- there's a number of reasons why they're associated with Christmas. One of them is their presence. So, yes, they are very vis- visible as well. You know, as we lose a lot of foliage and the leaves on our trees, they're more exposed. You can see them. They're very vocal. There are more of them. So there's that sense that robins are far more present or certainly feel far more present um, in our gardens. There's also a lot of emphasis on their song and the cheer that they bring, you know, to those kind of cold uh, winter mornings. But it's actually more to do with their, their red breast. So because of their red breast and their associated their association with the colour, we also see uh, a link to the British Postal Service. So the British Postal Service used to have these um, scarlet uniforms, and so they they earned themselves the nickname. Uh, the nickname was Robins. So what you had was, uh, you know, when people used to have their post delivered, and this was before every household had a letterbox. So the postal workers would bring letters directly to people's door and hand them to uh, to the recipients. Uh, and so what you would have was this this kind of account of the robins bringing you your your mail. So when the Christmas card became popular, robins with mail bags and bringing uh, letters were actually very very popular as a design for those Christmas cards. And so that that is where that association comes from. So yeah, it's to do with their red breast and that that uh, long link to the colour red. And it's not just uh, with the associated with Christmas. They've also got this link to some of our folklore. I mean, there's some really quite nasty old children's nursery rhymes about the robin, like who killed cock robin. And you just think, how did they get so associated with these nursery rhymes? Yeah, again, so that would be that would be a combination of 
their familiarity, their popularity, but also the color red. So the, the, the color red has this rich symbolism that links it to blood, that links it to fire. And so there's a lot of origin stories that are linked to robins and where they got their red breast from that links it to blood and fire. So, you know, who killed cock robin? As you said, it's quite a, it's quite a gruesome, uh, it's quite a gruesome nursery rhyme. It's, uh, it sees the robin uh, shot and killed with an arrow uh, by a, a very sort of villainous sparrow. And so you can imagine visually, you know, there's lots of, I mean, if you look it up, there are lots of great images of this, but, you know, this, this arrow right through the chest and you've got this kind of red breast, you know, the, the blood of, of the robin. So you can see how it becomes a focus for this kind of rhyme. Another rhyme that um, made it, or another tale that made it very uh, significant to folklore was the, the children in the wood, the babes in the wood. And this is two children that are led into the wood by an uncle who is looking to take their inheritance after the children's parents died. And the children are left there, they die as a result of exposure. And then robins come along and give them some kind of dignity in death. And that dignity is achieved by covering the children in um, in leaves. There's kind of a, the robins perform a burial and that is linked to their, their behaviour. So if you look at the way that robins feed on the ground, they tend to move leaves around. They'll uh, throw up moss to get at what's underneath. And so you can see how, again, you know, that sort of observation of their behaviour lends itself to that kind of account of a, a burial. I was reading that in the book and thought it was so interesting, that bit about it, how it's all in the folklore there. So back in the present day, I suppose, how are robins coping with climate change and insecticides and all that sort of stuff happening at the moment? Yeah, so climate change for birds generally, actually, is is likely to affect their migrations. So as I said, you know, in, in the UK, in the British Isles, Robins tend to stay put and don't tend to migrate. But what we might see are earlier migrations from elsewhere. So, for example, um, you might see, I mean, if we look at the American robin, there is evidence to suggest that American robins are migrating five days earlier, so earlier in the spring. And that's recognising the fact that spring is arriving earlier, that temperatures are rising uh, earlier and so on. So with bird migration, yeah, the birds that overwinter in Scandinavia might stay put instead of coming to the British Isles. But then you also uh, see an increase in robins in northern areas where winters are becoming milder and then decreases as a result in uh, in southern areas. But then there, there are other there are other things that um, that are linked to climate change that might have an impact on robins. So, for example, uh, if you have very very dry uh, summers, it might affect berry crops and fruits and what is available. So, if you think about what they rely on for their foods, it might also impact insects. You know, so if insects are out earlier in the year, again, this affects their food uh, their food source and when they can get it. And then also water, you know, if we think about the um, the summer that we've just had, summers are getting warmer, we've had a very, very dry summer. And of course, water is important uh, for, for birds like robins. There are other things to think about as well. So, I mean, you know, when thinking about climate change, obviously we've got a lot of 
focus on renewable energy sources and how that becomes a you know a part and parcel of thinking about how we try and combat um climate change so we might think about the wind turbines and the turn to wind energy there's been some great studies by researchers at Newcastle University that has looked at the impact of wind turbines and the noise that they make on robbing communication and, and robbing song and of course if they use their um, song to communicate territory and to um, defend territory when wind turbines uh, block out some of that then actually that changes the way that territories are protected and you might end up with uh, more aggressive combats and, and combats for robins can be quite lethal so when thinking about climate change yeah there's it's migration it's the impact that it has on their food sources and water but then also those other things that are perhaps less obvious like uh, the turn to, to renewable energy and you said there about the wind turbine noise, but also light pollution can be a problem for some birds, can't it? It can throw out when they start singing. That's right, yeah. So there's been a number of studies that have looked at the impacts of artificial lighting. So if you think in particular of, of robins in cities and how our cities now are, are lit up uh, 24-7. So artificial lighting has been linked to changes in the daily timing of robin songs. So they're singing earlier in the morning, they're singing later at night um, because there is a relationship between singing and light and how they perceive light. But it's also an impact on their, their kind of seasonal rhythms as well. So there were studies that have been carried out in southern Germany where it's found that male robins are more likely to sing earlier in the season um, at sites that were affected by light pollution. This is because a network of brain nuclei, um, this is known as the, the song control system, that's really responsible for song production and learning. And the regulation of this song control system is actually influenced by hormones, which these hormones are the hormones that facilitate sleep. So there's a real tight link between light, the stimulation of um, the song control system. And then, of course, if you've got artificial light, this reduces melatonin levels. And so winter days that are lengthened with artificial light might be perceived as spring days. And so, you're, uh, you know, you're triggering what seems to be an earlier singing in some robins. What impact that has on robins um, is unknown at the moment. You know, does that mean that you end up with more robin broods across a year because they're starting earlier in the year with their singing and with their breeding? Or does it mean that actually it's it's using up a lot more energy and so you have uh, more robin broods but perhaps le less successful robin broods? You know, it's, it, there's a lot of question marks over that. So robins are obviously facing a few problems here. How can we help the robins or encourage them into our gardens, give them a bit of an easier time of it? Yeah, so there's a lot of things that you can do to encourage robins into your garden. I mean, when, when people when people think about encouraging birds in, the first thing they'll think about is feeding. You know, so obviously, particularly particularly in the UK, you know, we are known for feeding our garden birds, for putting out fat balls and so on. You know, and and robins will feed from feeders. So whether that's hanging feeders. There are ground feeding birds. You can also get those feeders that you can put on the ground that come with those cages that you can put over them to stop other predators and that getting in. So always think about where these are located and whether or not they're accessible by cats. But I, I would say there are other things that you that that we should consider beyond simply putting out food. And that goes back to 
what they what they eat naturally so thinking about how we garden even if you've only got a very small garden you can look at the types of plants that you're putting in are there native species there to provide berries and seeds so you might think about fruit trees or apples or blackberries for example mistletoe very popular with uh, robins so thinking about what you actually plant in your garden can have a really big impact on the birds that you might uh, entice in and might provide a haven for beyond feeding you might also consider where you know robins tend to nest so robins tend to nest in cavities um they like ivy for examples they like places that they can hide away in and we've got a couple at the bottom of our garden and we've got quite a dense bit of ivy that's grown up against the fence things like this are really important for attracting robins um, because they will use it so dense vegetation places that they can rest places that they can nest and then going back to that question about um, climate change and um, water you know all birds need water if you can provide somewhere that they can um, bathe in so a bird bath even a small pond and they can be tiny a small amount of water in your garden will attract all kinds of birds not just robins but all kinds of birds very very quickly and thinking a bit more about their nesting habits, how many eggs will robins generally lay? Oh, six to seven, generally. And will the male and female work together or will the male sort of play away a bit or something like that when they're bringing up the babies? They normally work together, yeah, they normally work together. It's a very, very busy time. There are a lot of hungry mouths to feed. <laughs> it takes up a lot of energy. So there's a lot of food uh, to be sought. It tends to be females that build the nest, but other than that, they do tend to work very closely together. And the babies don't hatch out with a red breast, do they? That develops later as they mature. That is correct, yes. So whilst the adult robin is is very, very easy to recognise because of that distinctive uh, red breast, juvenile robin is actually very hard to identify. So it's it's tends to be all brown, has quite yellowish streaks and spots. And the juvenile doesn't tend to start developing its adult plumage until it's about 10 weeks old. Uh, And it then takes several more months before it has that kind of full plumage. So (laughs) while while that process is underway, uh, they do look very scruffy and quite unusual. So you have these little patches of orange that are starting to appear. But um, yeah, they can be quite hard to identify. Now, when I was researching this podcast, I was reading all about robin's eggs, and I know you talk about them in the book as well. Now, there's this colour, robin's egg blue, which is this lovely sort of bluish green colour. And when I was digging into a bit more, you'd find out that it's actually American robins and not British robins that have that blue colour. Now, I know in this podcast, we're talking a bit more about British robins, but that blue colour for an egg for the American robin, that seems like a really strange colour choice. Wouldn't that make it stand out more to predators? Well, this is an area where there is a lot of experimentation and scientific investigation. And there are many hypotheses around why different birds have different colour eggs. So starting with the European robin, yes, the European robin's egg is actually white and speckled. They tend to be um, quite hidden, so that's not too much of an issue. But yeah, people do often confuse the two um, precisely, as you say, because of the, um, the popularity of robin's egg blue which is this kind of 
this lovely color um, that's become especially popular in, in paint. But with the American robin, so there has been uh, a couple of studies that have been done that suggest that the uh, more vibrant the blue and um, the more time and effort and energy a male robin will invest in providing for those eggs. So the more intense the blue, the more likely that the female robin is more healthy. So one of the one of the hypotheses, and this is just one, is that the colour can tell us something about you know the the um, the health of of a bird. But I mean, it's it's an area of investigation that has grown rapidly you know as as we've had advances in technology and digital cameras we know a lot more about color pigmentation and we can recognize intensities of color uh, more easily uh, we also know a lot more about how birds see things so what parts of the spectrum they can see and you know in, in combination we can we can make hypotheses but there's still a lot more to be done yet to fully understand um to fully understand that thank you for listening to this episode of instant genius that was helen wilson her book robin published by reaction books is out now the latest issue of BBC Science Focus magazine is now available. Pick up a copy in store or visit sciencefocus.com.